All right, next week, next Monday night, we'll start with uh, History of Doctrine at Chafer Seminary course. And if you're a member of this church, then you can um, sign up for the course, and that way you get the ha- handouts and the notes and everything. You don't have to worry about writing it all down because that'll be impossible. And um, so that starts next week, uh, Monday night. So registration's going on now, and if you're a member here, you can take up to two courses, uh, tuition-free. Also, uh, annual congregation meeting coming up on February 5th. We're going to have a meeting uh, of the, I think the board, Alan's disappeared, the board meets on February the 4th, I believe. Is that right, Bryce, Greg, anybody? Fourth? Yeah, we usually meet right before the congregation meeting. And so we'll meet then. And then after that, which will be probably around 9, uh, 9.30 or 10, we're going to have a meeting with those who, are, who have been or are involved in prep school so that we can, and anybody who'd like to be involved in prep school, so that we can um, adjust some things. And uh, that should do it. And then we're all preparing for the Chafer Conference coming up. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's just make sure that we are spiritually prepared to study the Word, spiritually prepared, always uh, keeping short accounts in our life because we need to uh, confess sin, recover from sin, uh, recover fellowship, our walk by means of the Holy Spirit. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to do that, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to meet as believers, to have the freedom to teach, proclaim your word, not to be fearful of government intervention, interference, or persecution. Father, we pray for so many believers in this world who face opposition, and some in this nation, because they live in in states where there is a much more overt uh, opposition in the classroom and in um, businesses the hostility to the Bible, hostility to truth. Father, we pray that we might have courage. Sometimes it's a courage of conviction that we can stay where we are and have an influence. Sometimes it's a courage to move on down the road uh, because uh, we just have other circumstances. Father, we pray that we might have eyes that are open to the uh, influences of the worldly system around us on our own thinking. And now, Father, we pray as we study tonight, continuing in this study of judges, understanding grace, understanding how you have provided for us even when we are in complete rebellion, disobedience, and a culture is in complete rebellion and disobedience, and yet your grace preserves us and help us to understand that. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, I just thought I'd tell you a little bit. Today is January the 17th, and in 1941, early 41, something significant happened on this day. And I had thought we might hit this tonight, but I'm not sure I'm going to get that far in my notes. But it was a time when Britain was almost completely destroyed in the Battle of Britain. And... Roosevelt felt a lot of pressure, especially from the Republicans, not to get involved in Europe, and so his hands were basically tied. And yet Churchill was pushing his buttons every other day to get aid because they were just barely hanging hanging on. And so in January of 1941, uh, Roosevelt sent his trusted aide, a longtime, lifelong friend, someone he sent in his place many, many times, was Harry Hopkins, 
and uh, the press was really concerned about what Hopkins was going to do when he went to England, and Roosevelt just said, well, he's going to go over and just say, how do you do to a lot of my friends? And so Hopkins, who was ill much of this time, uh, had to endure a five-day trip. You think we've got it tough. I only had a 48-hour bus ride coming out of Ukraine, but this was a five-day trip on an American, a pan-American clipper that had to fly an extremely circuitous route to get him uh, to London. And there he uh, he met with Churchill, who uh, was dragging him all over London to show him the damage that uh, the German bombers had done. And during that time, of course, Hopkins was just trying to just handle it physically, but they developed a deep admiration to one another, for one another. On January the 17th, Churchill took him to Glasgow in Scotland to show him the defenses along the uh, Scottish coast. And at the end of the day, they had a private dinner at the North British Hotel Following the meal, Churchill rose and gave a speech, and then he turned to Hopkins, and he said, now Hopkins will say a few words. And Hopkins rose. He had little preparation. He thought through, breached into his memory, thinking of the perfect words to say. And he said, I suppose you wish to know what I'm going to say to President Roosevelt on my return. Well, I'm going to quote you one verse from the book of the, from the Bible, and that is going to come from the book of Ruth. Of course, we know he took it out of context, but it was a powerful message. He turned to Churchill and he said, Whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, my God. And then... Hopkins quietly whispered to Churchill, even to the end. Churchill began to weep. He knew exactly what that meant. He knew that Hopkins was telling him that he would be encouraging Roosevelt to to do whatever he could for as long as he could to help Britain. And it was that American backbone to for Britain that and led to the eventual defeat of the Nazis. I have a couple of different devotion books that focus on history and how Scripture impacted history. So I read this every morning or every other morning whenever I make sure I have a chance. And so when I find those stories that I think are encouraging, I will uh, bring those to your attention. All right, tonight we're back in Judges. Thank you for praying last week. Unfortunately, something came up health-wise that was dealt with uh, not so quickly, but within a few hours and prevented me from being here. So we're going to look at God's grace to the undeserving. The, The underlying theme that I see throughout Judges is God's grace to Israel. Any of us would have thought he would have pulled the plug at any point for three to four hundred years from the generation that died after the conquest. Conquest is roughly 1406, so you look 40, 50 years later, you're talking about from 1350 to 1050 when Saul becomes king. That's 300 years because there's a lot of overlapping. There are big issues in the chronology of judges, which we don't ever need to go into. But 300 years... I hear people all the time making comments like, I don't see how God can, Christ can keep from coming back soon. Look how bad it is. My message is, go read Jeremiah. You haven't seen bad yet. It has a long way to go. And read Judges, and we see that it had a long way to go. And yet God, in his grace, continued to uh, raise up leaders. He continued to, there were times, as we've seen with the so-called minor judges, 
that there were times of stability and grace and uh, peace in, in the land, but the overall trend is down. And in the church history course, which I teach for Chafer Seminary, which is not what I'm teaching this time, I'm teaching history of doctrine, and that covers the you know, six broad areas of systematic theology. I think it's six. Six broad areas. So we'll start with Scripture, and we're going to look at how the early church understood the Scripture and what they thought was Scripture and what they thought was not Scripture. And we'll go from the early church and trace it through the medieval church, the early medieval church, the later medieval church, the Reformation, the post-Reformation period, the modern period, and up to the post-modern period to see how the, the visible body of Christ has understood the authority of Scripture. And then we go back and we take theology proper. How did they understand God? How did they understand the Trinity? How did they, how did they sort it out that, uh, of what Jesus was before he came? We believe in one God, but Jesus claims to be God and claims to be the Father. Why is that not tritheism? So we go through that and we trace it through each period. So it, it's a little bit of a trudging thing because you're having to read a lot of of primary sources. The only way you can understand how those people in the early church or medieval church or Reformation church thought about God, thought about Christ, thought about salvation, is to read them. That is not easy reading. That's how it comes. But you, it, it, what I learned in history of doctrine was how to evaluate differences and and what the strengths and weakness are because you hear people you read one guy and you say he really had it together and then you read somebody who's opposed to him that's historically correct you well i surely didn't see all those problems so it, it, the value of it is to learn to discern when people sound good but aren't and throughout this period of the church age, 2,000 years. There were dark times in what we call the dark ages. That's not why they're called the dark ages, but they're, and, and they weren't as dark as a lot of people say they were because there was a lot of really positive things that were being thought through and developed in, in, in the monasteries. But we have God's grace. God's grace works over a long period of time. God's grace doesn't just, he's not just gracious for a couple of weeks and then, okay, I'm out of patience, done with you. And that's what we see when we look at, at the book of Judges is how the grace of God continues. And see, grace is one of those terms that many people talk about. Most churches say they believe in God's grace. They talk about how wonderful God's grace is. I had a person tell me one time when they found out I was having to do a lot of things to help my dad with my mother after she had had some strokes, said, you're earning a lot of grace. It still gives me goosebumps. It, ugh, you cannot earn grace. But see, there are worldwide denominations that's how they understand grace. That's how they have defined grace. It is something you can earn. So few people comprehend it. Lots of people talk about it, but few people con comprehend it or understand it or apply it in their own understanding of the Word of God or their own understanding of their life or their own understanding of behavior. And Judges teaches us a lot about this, especially as you get into Gideon and you get into Jephthah and then you just hit the dregs with Samson. And the most important thing you can really think about is God, in terms of God's grace is when we see what a spiritual failure Samson is in the book of Judges and then Barak and Gideon and Jephthah and Samson are all listed as spiritual heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. God is going to be so gracious to us at the judgment seat of Christ. 
because we have a high priest who understands the weaknesses of that we have as fallen corrupt sinners grace means unmerited favor it means undeserved blessing we talk about that but god's been so gracious to me and way back in the back of our minds we're thinking i deserve this don't i we don't we don't deserve anything but to be consigned to the lake of fire for all eternity God, in his goodness, decided that he would give a solution to salvation. So grace is a characteristic of God's love. It's one of the attributes that comes out of love. It is demonstrated most succinctly in John 3.16, where John wrote, or Jesus said, probably, for God loved the world in this way, that he sent his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's not a love that's based on who we are. It's not based on our physical or spiritual attractiveness because it isn't. Romans 5.8 is the other side of it, but God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still corrupt, rebellious, obnoxious, unlovable sinners he loved us that's what god's grace is it's a love that's based totally on who he is on his character it's not based on who we are it's not based on our character uh, because the human race as a whole and individually as sinners do not deserve anything from god we don't have a right to anything from god but god freely has chosen to give us good things and to provide salvation for us because of who he is. And that's one of the most difficult things for some people to ever learn, that God loves us. And for whatever reason, some people have guilt, some have sin, some act ways so heavily on on them that they just can't believe that God can actually love them as much as he loves other Christians. And that's a major problem for, I think, a lot of Christians. They just can't see how God could forgive them, so they don't, they can't accept a free gift. But God says that we all lack righteousness, that all our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. Notice he doesn't say all our unrighteousnesses are as filthy rags. He says all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And so God has provided a a solution. And God is righteous, and he cannot have fellowship with any creature that is less than perfect righteousness. And he uh, cannot have a, a personal love or an intimate relationship with anything beneath perfect righteousness. And that perfect righteousness, uh, has to be dealt with. That is one of the most important aspects of of our salvation. And so God's intimate personal love is 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 referenced in Scripture by the verb phileo, which we'll look at in just a minute, that he can't have that phileo love. He can only have agapao love. And that is uh, the love that he has. That's the word that's used in John 3.16, Romans 5.8, and a number of other other passages. But because God loves us with a perfect love, that perfect love also includes divine discipline. That's something that a lot of parents can't grasp. How can love spank a child? Biblically, how could love not spank a child? Let them get away with it. And, and, and that's clear what, what, what Scripture says. And so God's love also brings divine discipline, and that's what we have seen in each of these cycles in, in Judges. It's a discipline that's not motivated by an emotional anger. It's not God does not uh, fly off the handle in a rage. God does not lose his temper. So many times in Scripture it says he's it's long suffering. When you go back and you go through the history of Israel in in Kings and in Chronicles and and the history of Judah in Chronicles, you see how horrible their their idolatry was. 
And God didn't wipe them off the face of the earth. He gave them opportunity. He gave them rope to hang themselves, as it were. And that, I think that's that's where we are as as a country. So Judges thirteen one starts again, and we've seen this five other times. Again, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They violated God's standards. And the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. That's a, that's a serious oppression. That's, that's almost a generation that, that because of their sin, God brought in this, this disruption of enemy forces that were seeking to dominate and did in, in many areas of, especially southwestern Israel, they were dominated by uh, by the Philistines. And you see, this is completely consistent with God's promises in, that we've studied in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28, where God said, if you obey me, I'm going to do all these wonderful things for you. And if you don't obey me, I'm going to do all these terrible things to you. And so it all depends on your volition. Volition is a term that describes human ability to make choices, our will, So we have to understand that God gave us volition, which means we are responsible for the choices uh, that we make. It doesn't matter what the externals are. It doesn't matter if, um, if you're the product of a bad home life. It doesn't matter if you're the product of a poor education system. It doesn't matter if you were uh, born in incredible affluence and you were just left to uh, do whatever you wanted to do, and nobody ever taught you any discipline or right from wrong, and you were just spoiled. None of that matters because those secondary issues do not determine what we do. And modern psychology says, oh, yes, they do. But that's not what the Bible says. You make your own choices. You don't have to do what your environment pressures you uh, to do. And so the result of disobedience to God is spelled out clearly in these four verses in Jeremiah. This is really the issue. Most people want to go to Second Chronicles 7.14 where uh, God is answering Solomon's prayer on the basis of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 and 30 verses 1 through 3, where where Solomon has prayed God, when these people turn their back on you, and you remove them from the land and scatter them among the peoples, when they turn back to you, would you please do what you said you would do and restore them to the land? And uh Second Chronicle, uh, Chronicles 7.14, 1 Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name, my people is used, I don't know, 25, 30 times in Chronicles. It always refers to Israel. It never refers to any other country, nor can it. So this does not apply in any way, shape, or form to the United States or any other nation in history. It applies only to Israel. If my Because it's an answer to a prayer based on the Mosaic Covenant, and God's promise to Israel. So when God says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and turn to me, then I will hear their plea and I will restore them to the land. Now, that reflects this principle. This is the universal principle in Jeremiah eighteen seven. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. Now, he's applying this to Israel in the context, but it's stated as a universal principle that can relate to any nation. And then in verse 9, he says, And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil... In my sight, so that it does not obey, obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. In other words, this applies across the board to the history of nations, to the rise and fall of nations, that God 
if they if nations reach a point of depravity as the Canaanites did, then God will wipe them out. But if they turn back to him or turn to him, then he will he will raise them up. The issue has to do with God's grace. The issue has to do with God's grace and his providential care. What we have to understand here is this is not the harsh, evil Jehovah God of the Old Testament, which is what liberals will say. This is still the loving God of the Old Testament because love that doesn't discipline doesn't love. And so God says, I will bring discipline. I'll, take, I'll, I'll deal with it. And so he's going to chasten them. Now, a New Testament passage that I think is important is in Revelation chapter 3. And starting in about verse uh, 11 or 12, there is a, the final, uh, final letter of the seven letters to the seven churches, and this is the letter to those in Laodicea. And their, their indictment is listed in Revelation 3.15, where God says, or the Lord Jesus Christ says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. Now, a lot of people have misunderstood this. They think cold is good and hot is bad, or hot is passionate and good is not. You've missed the whole thing. How many of you all have gotten up, maybe you did this today like I did, and you get your, you warmed up your coffee and you got a hot cup of coffee and you set it down and I got caught up doing my notes, and I reached over for it 30 minutes later, and it's just lukewarm, doesn't taste good, and it's useless. If it was cold iced coffee, it would be good. If it was hot coffee, it would be tasty. But when it's lukewarm, it's useless. It just makes you bilious. That's that's what this is saying. It's not saying, I want you to be cold or I want you to be hot. It says, I want you to be cold or hot. Then you're usable. But when you're lukewarm, I'm just going to vomit you out of my mouth. So that's that's the indictment against the church at Laodicea is they're they're lukewarm, they're useless because they are neither hot or cold, they're not usable. So it that's followed up by this statement that Jesus makes in his indictment of the Laodiceans. He says, As many as I love and he uses the word phileo, which tells you that he's talking to a church of messed up believers but he has love for them, a phileo love, an intimate love, because they're members of the body of Christ. You know, the, Christ is the head of the body, the church. Christ is not a um, is not going to uh, beat up on his own body. He will discipline it, but he's not going to be destructive toward it. Another image: we're the bride of Christ. Christ isn't a wife beater. Okay. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. That's his love. Phileo love. That's not his agapao love. That's his phileo, his intimate, deep, personal love. I will rebuke and chasten. Therefore, he says, be zealous and repent. That means to change the way you're doing things. And then he says that well-known verse that people try to use for evangelism, and it's not, because you see he's talking to those whom he loves phileo. Let that sink in. That phileo tells you he's addressing those who are believers. And when he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, he's not talking about inviting Jesus into your life so you can be saved. He's telling that you are, as a carnal believer, as you've locked the door and locked Jesus out of your Christian walk, and you need to uh, turn back to God and let him in. He desires that more intimate fellowship. So if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Eating together is a sign of fellowship all through the scriptures, the Lord's table. It's that intimate fellowship that we have at communion. When God, along with two angels, probably the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, shows up at Abraham's tent, what's the first thing Abraham does? 
is he's going to slaughter a, a fatted calf and prepare a meal that's probably going to take him two or three hours to prepare, but he is going to be hospitable. They are going to have fellowship. So this is an important principle is that that God has this kind of love for believers, and if he has this kind of love for believers, and this kind of love is going to rebuke, chasten, correct, then that's what love does. And parental love does that. And we have a whole generation of parents who don't understand this at all. And they don't discipline their children, and if they do, they have a real problem because they're uh, children's friends don't understand that, and the neighbors are going to report them for child abuse, and all sorts of other things are going on in this this culture. So God's grace is God's love for all mankind. It is related to His character. It is an expression of agapao love in the Old Testament. It's Chesed love, which is God's loyalty to His covenant. It's not based on any human attribute on our part but on the righteous character of God. He is always going to love us with that agapao love. And that grace includes divine discipline. That love includes divine discipline based on, based on his love. We see the same thing in Hebrews 12, 5 through 7, where uh, the writer of Hebrews reminds his readers that, yes, indeed, God loves you, and if you turn your back on him, then there will be divine discipline. He quotes from Proverbs. He says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. See, your family members, when you're a believer in Christ, you're a son, you're a child of God. And if God, God loves you, he's going to bring discipline. And the Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 3, I believe, says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. So God disciplines. And that's what we see all through the Old Testament with Israel, that God disciplines because this is how a father takes care, does the family. So when we look at the flow of the Old Testament history, what we see is that God promised Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant that he would unconditionally bless all mankind uh, through, uh, through Abraham, that this was a covenant. So God had made a legal binding agreement. So the first uh, thing that we see is that Israel's sin at Mount Sinai did not end the promise. What happened at Mount Sinai? Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. He's up there for 40, 40 days and 40 nights, and he comes back down. He hears the sound of an orgy taking place down at the bottom, and they are sacrificing to Baal and all sorts of unspeakable things. Because they, where did they come from? They came from Egypt, and so they're imitating the pagans that they knew. But as bad as they were, and they have enticed Aaron to take, all, take this gold that they had brought out of Egypt and to melt it down and to make a golden calf idol so that they could worship that golden calf. And when Aaron made it, he said, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. I mean, talk about just turning your back on God completely and being a rebellious traitor, uh, that pretty much uh, sums it up. But that doesn't end God's promise. In the wilderness, again and again, they gripe and they complain. God disciplines them in the wilderness, but that does not cause God to change his promise. Israel's idolatry during the judges period did not destroy the covenant. God did not say, well, I'm done with you. He acted like it. He was ready to, but he didn't. God cannot do that. But anthropomorphically, that is put out there, and he threatens it. When Israel sacrificed the firstborn on the fiery altars of Moloch, it didn't end the covenant. When Jephthah, the judge, burned his daughter on the altar, it didn't end the covenant. God did not turn his back on Israel. Why is that? Because the covenant wasn't based on the goodness of Israel. 
God never would have done it if that was going to be his basis. It's based on God. It's not based on man. It's based on God's integrity and not man's infidelity. And it is based on God's work and not on man's work. And that's what we're seeing. This is an extreme, as hard as it is to go through judges, we ought to be rejoicing because God's grace that's demonstrated there is the same grace he demonstrates in your life and my life every single day. So we're in this last cycle in the Samson cycle. This is the sixth time that Israel's degenerated into idolatry, turned their back on God, abandoned God, become traitors to God. It's the sixth time they've done evil in the sight of God, the sixth time that God has brought discipline in their lives. But this time they didn't cry out to God. Why is that? That's an important question to ask. Why don't they cry out to God? What is their as the Philistines are oppressing them and forcing them into the mold of their pagan worldview, worshiping the creature rather than the creator, what is going on? What The dynamics of that cultural oppression are the result of wanting to get along. We don't want to fight the Philistines anymore. Let's just all go along with it, get along with it. I don't want to be a source of contention in my school classes. I don't want to be a problem at work. I don't want people in my family to think that I'm always the one that has an issue with things, so I'm just going to go along uh, with everything else. There's an oppression by the Philistines, and we've studied who they are. And what's basically happening in this whole period is just relativism. It's the moral relativism that comes as a result of a desire just to get along with other people no matter what, that I'm not going to make an issue about the fact that they're living in a false world. Now, too often people who want to oppose it cannot oppose it graciously. That's another problem. We have to oppose it graciously but we have to oppose it. So when we get into this particular chapter, we see what is happening as the Philistines are pressuring the Jews to assimilate to their culture. That's Romans 12, 2, that says, do not be conformed to the world. They're being pressured to conform to the world. And so what we see here is the problem of relativism then and now. Relativism means that if everything is equally true, then uh, equally true, then everything is equally false. This leads to an ecumenical mindset that truth doesn't matter. What matters is things that we can hold in common and agree on and try to build on that. Relativism means that there's no absolutes, and every culture has its own views, and all cultures are are equally valid. And that's where we are today. It's called multiculturalism. Today, this is one of the greatest threats to America, but we've gone beyond multiculturalism to, if you follow the news, I hope you don't, but... Our lovely congresswoman from just east of here has put forth a bill that to define basically um, racism, anybody who says anything negative about anybody who has a different skin color is is committing some sort of of racism and they need to be put in jail and to include white racism as uh, part of hate speech problem with hate speech is if you understand the biblical makeup of man, sin operates on hate and anger and murder and all of these other sins are simply come out of rage, hatred, and anger. So we live in this world where we've gone from multiculturalism to Black Lives Matter by people for whom the blacks in their own community that die every single day don't matter. 
it's the world's turned inside out. So relativism means that if everything is equally true, then everything is equally false. And that's this ecumenical mindset we have today. It has infected Christianity. Most major denominations are useless biblically because they have compromised profoundly with truth. They wanted to get along with modern science. They wanted to get along with these uh, relativistic concepts that were coming out in the 19th century, and they gave up biblical truth. So what we have to realize is if everything is relative, then nothing is worth dying for. If, If there's no truth... There's no absolutes, and there's nothing worth dying for. And if you don't have anything worth dying for, you really don't have anything worth living for. That's the flip side of it. And people who don't have anything that is worth living for, they have nothing worth dying for. Third point is that (coughs) the only thing worth living for is whatever you want to do at the moment. Whatever is going to give you pleasure, whatever is going to stimulate your emotions. So emotions become the ultimate arbiter of what is right and what is wrong. And that is played out completely in postmodernism. And I just saw a notification across my computer earlier that there's an uh, interview that was on Epic and saying that that this woman was saying that in in the West, in Western civilization, we have a serious soul problem because postmodernism has destroyed our soul. And that's exactly right. It, it is self-destructive. If nothing is worth dying for, then the great sin is fighting for your truth. The great sin is fighting for an absolute if you say there is an absolute right or wrong, then you are the enemy of whatever it is that they're holding up as that which is right. One example of that is not just here but across the world that the progressive left has put themselves and portrayed themselves and wrapped themselves in the cloaks of democracy, and they have excelled in promoting that view. So that whenever anybody says anything against their ideas or their practices or anything that they say, they are a a racist. They're anti-democracy. They hate democracy. And every time somebody on the conservative side says something negative, you just listen to this. They're anti-democracy. They're against freedom. And they just keep saying that it's the big lie technique, that if you say the same thing loud enough, long enough, people are going to believe you even if it's totally absurd. And if nothing is worth dying for, you're not going to fight for truth, and that leads to pacifism, and that leads to arms control, and that leads to taking away a right that they have no right to take away, and that has to do with the Second Amendment. Without accepting a concept of absolutes, neither an individual nor a nation can turn back to God. Think about that. If you cannot accept absolutes, then you cannot accept God. You're not going to be able to go the first step towards turning toward God because that assumes that there are absolutes. That is the foundational presupposition that is not talked about. And that is that there are no absolutes. And without that, you can't, you're not ever going to turn back to God. And the reality is that biblical truth divides. It should divide. It should divide families. Jesus said that. I came to bring a sword. It will, truth divides, it divides families. It's going to divide uh, the apostate from the spiritual. It's going to divide churches. It's going to divide everybody. It's going to divide friends, and in some cases, it's going to divide marriages because there is no fellowship between 
light and darkness between the saved and the unsaved. And in our time, the great sin is holding to any form of moral or spiritual absolutes. The only absolutes you have a right to are the relatives of the progressive left. And if you do that, then your soul is in danger. All that's just by way of taking what we see going on at the time of Samson and applying it, those principles, to what we see going on today. We reflect this very much. And that's why I, I've gone, I came back to Judges is because this is a book for our times. And there are believers, there are great believers, there are horrible people at, in Israel at this time. And the same is true now. So when we come to Samson's judgeship, there are seven unique features in Samson's judgeship that are different from the other judgeships. They're different from Ehud, they're different from Othniel, they're different from Deborah and Barak and Gideon, and uh, they're different from Jephthah. First of all, Samson's cycle is much more biographical. We're told about his birth. We're told about a lot of things that happened that he did, and we are told about his uh, his love life, and we're told about his death. But we're not told that about as much about that as others. Second, his birth is told in detail. He had a miraculous conception and birth. It's announced by the angel of the Lord, as mother was barren. And God, in his mercy, brought life into her womb so that Samson would be born and that he would uh, he would have a divine purpose. Now, he's not a deliverer. He doesn't accomplish that. He's a bull in a china closet, and that's what his purpose was, was to stir things up and to cause problems to stop the assimilation of Israel to the Philistine uh, creature worship. You know, that's an interesting thing. The Israelites have had a problem with assimilation since the time of Jacob and his brothers. And if there had not been the Holocaust, the Jewish community of Europe was on the verge of complete assimilation into the European culture. The The vast majority of Jews in Europe in 1920s and 1930s uh, even going back into the late 1800s, this was an issue with the Dreyfus trial. Uh, Alfred Dreyfus was a, an artillery captain in the French army, that, and he was Jewish, but he didn't think of himself as Jewish. He totally assimilated to French culture. But when there was problems that came up, and he was accused of spying for the Russians, and next thing you know... Um, that you just have this wave of anti-Semitism in, in, in France. And the Jews realized this is what was, um, what was so uh, significant in the rise of, of, of Zionism. In the rise of Zionism, you had the realization that, that we can't really assimilate, that in the midst of all of this, uh, we thought we were French and German and Swiss and Austrian, but those people never accepted us. So they've always had that problem. So Samson is used to stir things up. Third point is much more attention is given to Samson's personal life. We learn about his love life, his lust life, and how he treats the women in his life, which is typical of what happens in, in, in paganism. It's a complete distortion of the roles of men and women, and we see that in our world. Fourth, Samson never seems to be concerned about his relationship with the Lord. Not once. We don't see him going to sacrifice. We don't read any psalms that he wrote. We don't hear anything uh, positive about his walk with the Lord. And what we do see is that he consistently violates the um, stipulations of the Nazarene uh, uh, of the Nazarene vow every every chance that he uh, that he gets. And fifth, he does not complete the deliverance, which the previous five did complete a deliverance. Sixth is he's a loner. He operates on his own. He doesn't have an army. It's just 
Samson going out and causing trouble with the, with the Philistines. Seventh, we see that his death is told in detail. So these are some of the differences uh, that we see. Now, there are some parallels that we see between Israel and Samson. I'm going to go through this basically twice, these things, because not only does his life parallel Israel, but his life parallels what goes on with a carnal Christian. So what we see is both Samson and Israel are chosen by God to perform a mission of deliverance. Samson was supposed to deliver Israel from the oppression of the Philistines. Israel was supposed to be uh, God's people who were providing a light to the rest of the world. Second, both Samson and Israel are born miraculously. Israel is born as a result of God's grace coming to Abraham, promising him a seed, and then miraculously enabling uh, a very old uh, Abraham and very old Sarah to conceive and have a child, Isaac. Third, both Samson and Israel are born in the midst of a pagan environment, and they are called to a life of separation and devotion to Yahweh, and they both fail. Fourth, both Samson and Israel succumb to the lure of that pagan environment, Samson is drawn to foreign women. Israel is drawn to foreign gods. Spiritual adultery and playing the harlot. This is what they do. Fifth, both Samson and Israel sought peaceful coexistence with the other side. And that's what we see with so many people today. They just don't want to buck the opposition because now it's really out there the war is open and the other side doesn't play fair and and it's really mean and so they don't want to take that stand six neither samson nor israel seem overly concerned with god god they give lip service to god that's what jeremiah talks about they 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 just use god words but there's no real relationship with god in the heart of the people in fact, it's so bad, and God is determined he's going to take uh, is Judah out under divine discipline in Jeremiah that several times he tells Jeremiah, don't pray for them, because I'm not going to listen. And a lot of people have trouble with that theologically. I remember when Jimmy Draper was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention in the late 70s, and he made a statement that God doesn't listen to the prayers of Jews. And that almost made front-page news. That was a horrible thing for him to say. No, it wasn't. He was stating the truth. God told them several times in the Old Testament because they didn't listen to him, because they turned their back on him, God was not going to listen to them. God says that about every believer. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But, oh, we live in a world where we have such a warm, fuzzy God. He's always going to listen to us, and he's our Santa Claus, so he's going to give it to us. Seventh, both Samson and Israel seem to want to manipulate God to their own ends and purposes. That's what people do today. They only invoke God or religion or quote scripture if somehow it's going to get them something. And they're going to try to pull the wool over people's eyes and say, see, if I say the magic Christian words, then everything's going to be okay. And sadly, it pulls the wool over a lot of Christians' eyes. Eighth, both Samson and Israel are protected by God despite their disobedience and are used by God for his purposes despite their negative volition and though neither merit such blessing. God is going to use Israel in spite of themselves and he's going to use you sometimes and me sometimes in spite of ourselves. That's called grace. So ninth, the plan of God is not creaturely dependent. There's not one of us that is indispensable to God's plan. Though God is sovereign, he does not force his will on people, but we see him working behind the scenes such that when man is disobedient, God nevertheless still works out the results he desires. And that's we see the invisible hand of God throughout Samson, and then when we plug it into the overview and we see what's happening in the book of Ruth, 
we see how God is working behind the scenes. So what's the comparison between Samson and carnal believers? Well, both Samson and church-age believers are chosen by God to perform a mission of deliverance. Matthew 28, 19, and 20, Jesus' great commission to his disciples is that uh, we are to go throughout the world uh, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which basically refers to evangelism, and then teaching, teaching, not preaching, teaching all to obey everything that I have said. Evangelism and instruction, that's the mission of the church. And that was a mission. Samson had a mission to be a deliverer, but both are failing. Second, both Samson and church-age believers are born miraculously. Uh, Samson was born through the uh, conception, miraculous conception of a barren mother, and church-age believers are born through the hand of God. John 1, 12 says, But as many as received him, the previous verse says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Then who were born, that is, those who believed in his name, those who received him, were born not of blood. See, Jews thought that it was your genetic relationship to Abraham that automatically got you into the kingdom. No Jew would ever go to the lake of fire. No Jew would ever be eternally punished. But what G- what John is saying is that we have to be born. Jesus develops this in John 3. We were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. You can't will yourself to be a regenerate person. That's not talking about exercising our volition to believe in Christ. That's talking about you can't will your, you can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps to be regenerated. So it's not of the will of flesh nor of the will of man. That is, humanity can't solve the problem, but of God. God is the one who regenerates us when we trust in Jesus Christ as our, as our Savior. Third, both Samson and the church are born in the midst of a pagan environment and called to a life of separation and devotion to Yahweh. Now, in our parents' and grandparents' generation, because the culture was so superficially Christian, and in some places it was more actually Christian than others, that there was this confusion in terms of separation from the world. But we don't have that problem anymore. I remember the first time I really had some ministry in Southern California back in the late 80s. One of the things that Christians in California said, it's real clear here, you're either living the Christian life, you're a believer, or you're you're not. There was such a distinction between those who were Christians and those who were not. Now we're seeing that more and more across the whole country. Uh, We still have some residuals from the influence of the Bible Belt, uh, on Texas and some other places, but but you look out there, the the most of the evangelical churches in this city are pathetic. There's no teaching. There's no Bible coming out of their pulpits, and they that's why they can that's why they have five thousand or ten thousand or fifteen thousand members because they're not saying anything that's going to offend anybody. I've got some very dear friends who are not saved, and the wife is kind of her hobby has been studying psychology for years. And she made the comment one time, she said about one of the popular big churches in town, well, all he's doing is giving motivational speeches. That has nothing to do with Christianity. You know, she's as spiritually blind as anybody, but she can see that. But most Christians can't see that. And one time her husband told me, he said, you know, why aren't more Christian churches like that? I can watch him and I'm never offended. What an indictment. So we are born to a live a life of separation. We have to say no, no to social justice. We have to say no to... Uh, uh, critical race theory. We have to say no to Darwinism. We have to say no to Marxism. 
These are all, and Marxism was a philosophy developed by a man who, to the marrow of his bones, hated God and hated Christianity. We have to reject all these other worldviews. We have to understand what they are and reject them. We have to say no to naturalism, existentialism, modernism, Platonism, uh, Aristotelianism, uh, all of the different worldviews that have come down through the years. Uh, there's a book called The Universe Next Door. If you want to go through a, a good study on what worldviews are historically, that's the book to read by James Sire, S-I-R-E. Romans 12.2 says, We are not to be pressed into the mold of our culture's values and methodology. If you don't know your culture's values and methodologies, how in the world can you avoid being pressed into their mold? And the way you avoid it, one of the ways you avoid it is you have to, the only way you can truly avoid it is you have to be transformed by the Word of God. Fourth, both Samson and the compromised carnal church age believer succumb to the lure of that pagan environment. The church always has. You study church history, you see that it is always influenced and shaped and affected by whatever is going on in the culture around them. Samson is drawn to foreign women. Church-age carnal believers are drawn to the cosmic system and sin, spiritual adultery, and playing the harlot. That's what they do. Fifth, both Samson and the compromised carnal church-age believers seek peaceful coexistence. You really go to some of these churches and you listen to their music. Now, if you've really been in, in, infected by the music of your culture, then you'll be drawn to it. But music is one of the most profound influential factors in life. Plato said, you change the music, you change the culture. Music is a cultural tool. Whenever, a, you, whenever you go through history and you see a, a shift, the music, the arts, shift. These are not neutral. And yet we always try to take the world's way of doing things and bring them into, into the church. Six, neither Samson nor the compromised carnal church-age believers seem overly concerned with God. Indeed, the physical blindness of Samson illustrates the spiritual blindness of the compromised carnal church-age believer. The average believer out there, and I think there are thousands and thousands more than we would ever imagine in this city. I think there are a lot of believers in this city who know there's something wrong with a lot of these churches, so they just quit going to church. They don't know there's anything like West Houston Bible Church out there and some of the other good teaching churches in, in Houston. So they've just given up because they don't want to go to those churches. They know there's something wrong. But then the younger people don't know because they don't ever they don't have a time frame to remember when churches were somewhat different. Seventh, both Samson and the compromised carnal church-age believers seem to want to manipulate God to their own ends and purposes. You know, just go to the Christian channels on TV and listen to the health and wealth gospel preachers. That's all they're doing is trying to manipulate God to make them wealthy and to make them uh, healthy. Oh, is that... I, you know, I haven't read that. must be in, in Fourth Hesitations that God wants us to be healthy and wealthy. Eighth, both Samson and the compromised carnal church-age believer are protected by God despite their disobedience, and they're used by God for his purposes despite their negative volition and though neither merit such blessing. Ninth, the plan of God is not creaturely dependent. It's not dependent on how well the church does. It's not dependent upon how well church-age believers do. It's based upon the sovereign will of God and that he is working to bring about his purposes. So he's going to raise up Samson. Samson's going to be a bull in a china closet, and he will judge Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. 
So we will start next time with Judges 13.25. Father, thank you that we can look at this and we can see the impact that relativism had on Israel spiritually and militarily and, in fact, their whole culture. We should take warning, but we've learned from history that we learn nothing from history. And so we sit in somewhat frustration watching the world around us spiral into self-destruction. But we know that you're in charge and that you are raising up men and women who stick with the truth, stick with your word, and who are active in many ways within the universities and within uh, churches and within politics and within the law constantly in a war trying to hold back the tsunami and you in many cases strengthen them but we are in a war and it's a war that ultimately it is part of the angelic revolt so father we pray that you might strengthen us that we might not be discouraged because it's easy for people to do that get your eyes on the waves instead of on the lord but when we put our eyes on you we know there's hope that there's peace, there's stability, because the world never could provide those things. So strengthen us and help us and get our eyes on the Word, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.